0: In 2006, the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, was airing a special about this legal battle at the time between Apple Inc., the maker of the iPhone, and Apple Corp., which was the record label founded by the Beatles. And so there was some copyright infringement battle going on there. So the BBC invited this technology and Internet expert, a guy named Guy Cuny, To come for an on air interview, but the day of that interview happened to also be the day that another guy, Guy Goma, was showing up to the same office for a job interview. Well, the BBC staffers mistook Guy Goma for Guy Cuny and they put makeup on him and they put a microphone on him and they set him there in front of all these lights and cameras and began the interview. So Guy Goma is thinking he's getting prepared for a job interview. He's wondering, what is all this fuss about for a job interview? And the moment he realizes what's happening is just priceless. Uh, Put that video up, uh, if you don't mind. We'll watch a few seconds of this. Uh,
1: So, yeah, he
0: was very much surprised that these questions would come to him, right? So, you know, it's, it's... You know, amazing how this guy was so cool-headed, even though he was shocked, he realized what was happening. He goes on for about another minute trying to speak intelligently to something he knows absolutely nothing about. Um, So hats off to him. Sadly, his cool head and that effort didn't land him the job. He didn't get the job. Uh, But nor did the interviewer get the insights that she was looking for. You see, it's important... To make sure that when you're going to someone for insight, for truth, for wisdom, that it's the actual person you need to get your answers from, right? There are a lot of people today who think that they are following and worshiping Jesus. But it's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's a Jesus of their own postmodern making. Last week we began a, began a sermon series on Jesus' I Am statements. We want to hear about Jesus in His own words. What did Jesus have to say about Himself? That's the best way for us to know if we're really worshiping and following the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. We've not mistaken Him for some other Jesus of our own making or of somebody else's making. So we began to look at Jesus' claim in John 14 last week where He said, I am the way the truth, and the life. Jesus didn't just come to show us the way. He is the way. He didn't come just to teach us truth. He is the truth. He didn't come just to give us life. He is the source of our life. And we looked at the root claim that Jesus made that informs all of these I am statements in John's Gospel where Jesus simply claimed to be the great I am. If you heard last week talked about how that is God's covenant name, Yahweh, the name God revealed Himself as to Moses at the burning bush. It means I am that I am. Jesus claimed to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He claimed to be the God who delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. He's the one who made a way through the Red Sea, who revealed the truth of the Torah, who gave and sustained Israel's life in the Promised Land. And that seminal claim, where Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, was made in John chapter 8, which is where today's text comes from as we look at this next I am statement. John eight twelve, Jesus said, I am the, it says Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, to understand what Jesus means by that, we're going to look at the broader context. We're going to look back at chapter 7. We're going to look ahead at chapter 9. And in these three chapters, we find not only this profound pronouncement, but three precious promises and a powerful proof. But let's first look at this pronouncement. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, remember, Jesus never makes these I am statements in a vacuum. Last week we looked at when Jesus said He was the way, the truth, and the life. What festival, what feast was that in the context of that He said that? Does anybody remember? It was Passover, right? It's it's Thursday night, the night before He's crucified, the night He institutes the Lord's Supper. They are sitting at the Passover Seder meal when Jesus says that. And so we looked at how Jesus' claim echoes the three main chapters of the Exodus story. That He is the way of of deliverance from slavery to freedom, like the way through the Red Sea. That He is the truth, just as God's covenant promises and laws were revealed at Mount Sinai. Jesus is that truth revealed to us. And just as God gave Israel abundant life in the promised land, Jesus gives us life. He gives us our peace and our prosperity. And so in the same way, just as Jesus made that statement in the context of that great feast, Jesus makes this statement in the context of another Jewish feast, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. Now that's one of the great fall festivals. There are three great fall festivals. Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, the Jewish New Year, that's one. Uh, The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which, by the way, is tonight into tomorrow, is the Day of Atonement and then a few weeks later will be the feast of tabernacles the great fall feasts now how do we know that jesus said this during the feast of tabernacles it doesn't say that in john 8:12 we'll look back at john 7:37 look back at john 7:37 on the last and most important day of the festival jesus stood up and cried out if anyone is thirsty let him come to me and drink well again john here doesn't tell us which festival just that it was a festival. It was the last, most important day of a festival. So, which festival was it? Well, let's look at more at what Jesus said on this last great day of the festival. Let's look at verses 37 through 39. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flowing from deep within him. And then John tells us, He said this about the Spirit. Those who believe in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Meaning He had not yet died, been raised, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. He had not yet been glorified, so the Spirit had not yet been given. Now, this right here obviously is not an I am statement. Jesus doesn't say, I am the living water. It's not an I am statement, but it's a staggering claim nonetheless Jesus is saying, come to me and never thirst. Come to me and have all of your thirst quenched. Again, he's not claiming to be the living water. The Holy Spirit is the living water, but you can't receive the Spirit unless you come to faith in Jesus. When we come and drink in all that Jesus has given us, forgiveness, righteousness, life forever and free, then we will discover a spring of living water welling up from within us, and that is the Holy Spirit filling our lives and working and speaking through our lives to pour out into the lives of those around us. So, now this isn't the first time or the only time that Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit in terms of water. He does the same thing, if you remember, at the woman at the well. The Samaritan woman at the well, he talks about this in the same way. And then he refers to the Holy Spirit as both water and wind when he talks to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. The Bible often compares the Holy Spirit to wind or to water. So this festival here in John seven thirty seven, we know that it must last more than one day. So it's not Yom Kippur, for example. That's just one day. It's a multi-day festival. So that's our first clue. But it's also a festival that in some way must deal with light, and water, Because, again, Jesus doesn't just randomly say these things. So this the last most important day of a festival. And twice, Jesus at one point talks about living water, talks about being the light of the world. Water and light must have something to do with this festival, and that would be the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, you may remember the Feast of Tabernacles was meant to remind the Jewish people of their 40 years of wilderness wandering after the Exodus Before they settled in the Promised Land, they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, and they lived in tents. And God provided for their needs, and He protected them during this time. Well, sometime around 200 B.C., 200 years before Jesus came, the Jews developed a a couple of rituals related to the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The first ritual, the high priest, would lead a procession from the Temple Mount down the hill through the lower part of the old city of Jerusalem, the city of David. He'd lead this procession all the way down to the bottom where the Pool of Siloam was. And he would take a pitcher and he would fill up the pitcher from the Pool of Siloam and then he would march back up to the temple and all the people following would be singing all of these psalms of ascent from the book of Psalms. And when they arrived at the temple, the high priest would raise up the pitcher and pour the water on the ground. Now, what do you imagine this might symbolize? Remember, it's the Feast of Tabernacles, right? It's about the wilderness wandering. What story from the wilderness wandering might this pouring out of water symbolize? The water out of the rock. When Moses drew water out of the rock for the thirsty nation in the desert. And as the high priest would be pouring this out, he'd quote from Isaiah 12, verse 3, that says, "...you will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation." Now look with me again at John seven, thirty seven and thirty-eight, what Jesus says. He says, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink, the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, this is what he's quoting. Will have streams of living water flowing from deep within him. Jesus is saying he is this spring of salvation that when we come to Him, He gives us the Spirit of God who will provide us with a never-ending spring of water welling up within us to quench our every spiritual thirst. Now let's look at Isaiah 12. I'm going to read all of Isaiah 12 because the priest wouldn't just quote that one verse. He'd be reciting the whole chapter. Okay? And so maybe Jesus makes this statement about living water right after this. We don't know. But look at Isaiah 12. It says, On that day you will say, I will give thanks to You, Lord. Although You were angry with me, Your anger is turned away and You have comforted me. Indeed, God is my salvation. And I will trust Him and not be afraid. For the Lord, the Lord Himself, is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. You will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation. And on that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord. Proclaim His name. Make His works known among the peoples. Declare that His name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for He has done glorious things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry out and sing, citizen of Zion, for the Holy One of Israel is among you in His greatness. This passage of Scripture would have been on the minds of all the people as Jesus makes this great I Am statement. Now, Let's get back to what he says about being the light of the world because that's what we're talking about today, right? Am I right? We're supposed to be in John 8, 12, light of the world. Well, there was a second the second ritual that happened on this last great day. And we know this is on the same day because he says there in verse 12, Jesus spoke to them again. So what John is doing is he is connecting this with this previous story at the end of chapter 7. Jesus claim to both be the source of living water and to be the light of the world both occurred on the same day, the festival of tabernacles, the last day of the feast. So that brings us to this second ritual. So after pouring out the water, the high priest would then begin a ceremony where they would light all of the temple lamps, the menorah that lined the courtyard, and they would light all of these lamps. Now again, that reminds us of something that happened during the wilderness wandering you remember, God led the nation of Israel by a pillar of cloud by day and what did He lead them by by night? A pillar of fire. God lit their way every night. And so, as these menorahs are being lit, the people would recite another chapter from Isaiah. Isaiah 60, verses 1-3 through where it says, Arise, shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord shines over you. For look, Darkness will cover the earth and total darkness the peoples. But the Lord will shine over you and His glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to your shining brightness. Just like that Isaiah 12 passage, this is a messianic promise. The Jews associated the Messiah with both water and with light. The Messiah would shine the glory of God for all peoples to see. All the nations would come to Israel to the light of God's salvation. So what does Jesus say? As these menorahs are being lit, He stands up in the temple court perhaps, and He says, I am the light of the world. Follow Me, and you will never walk in darkness again. Follow Me, and you will have the light of life. Again, Jesus takes a ritual meant to remind Israel of God's mighty deeds in the past, and He interprets it as the present fulfillment of the One who came to bring us salvation Himself. It's undeniable when you read this, Jesus did claim to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and the source of our salvation. There's no doubt about that. And because of who Jesus is, because of this pronouncement that He is the light of the world, He gives us three precious promises that are made to everyone who believes in Him, who trusts in Him, who follows Him as Lord and Savior. The first of these is a promise from darkness to light, that if we follow Jesus, we will walk in the light. That's there in verse 12. You know, making decisions in the dark can lead to some regrettable circumstances and consequences, can't they? Uh, there's a story that's told uh, back before electricity of a top-fisted farmer, right? He was, he was a, a, a penny pincher and he had this hired man that he was taken to, ca- to task because a young man would carry a lit lantern at night as he went to go- call on his best girl. And the, and the old farmer was like, that's a waste, you don't need to carry that lamp. Why, when I was your age and I went a-courting, I walked there in the dark. I went in the dark to my girl. And the young man Riley said, yes, and look what you got. (laughs) We shouldn't make decisions in the dark, right? But for many people, they're stumbling around in the dark. They're making decisions about their lives that have eternal consequences. And and they're either ignorant of or they are simply refusing to walk in the light of the Lord. And, And what's even worse, they end up then leading their children, their spouses, their friends, astray. It's the blind leading the blind. Even as Christians who have the light of life, even we may foolishly decide to hide our lamps under baskets. How many of us unnecessarily stumble through our lives and our relationships, right? And we all have blind spots. We all have those dark places in our lives where we're either afraid or ashamed or too prideful and stubborn to let Jesus shine His light in those dark corners. John writes in his, in his letter, First John two verses nine through eleven. He says that the one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness. Until now, the one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, doesn't know where he's going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. How many of us are stumbling around, blinded by our pride? Unforgiveness and bitterness. Prejudice, lust, materialism, greed, righteousness, self-righteousness, ambition. I could go on. How many of us are, are just unnecessarily walking around with our eyes closed? When we have the light, we know the truth. It doesn't have to be like that because the light of the world has come. And when we choose to follow Him, we shouldn't be. We don't have to be stumbling in the dark. We can walk confidently and wisely in the light of His truth. To follow Jesus means you believe Him, right? It means that you trust Him. It reminds me of back in the day when I used to lead the the youth trips to Gatlinburg and we would do these night hikes up to Abrams Falls. It was a short hike, you know, a couple miles, paved trail almost all the way. But we would walk in darkness and in silence. It was a sensory sort of experience, a prayerful experience. But we'd have somebody in the back. One of the adults would be in the back with a flashlight. Somebody in the front would have a flashlight. And if it was a big enough group, you might have one or two other people in the middle there with flashlights. But if you didn't have a flashlight, who are you going to follow? The person with the flashlight, right? And their job was to point out, you know, there's some roots right here. There's a step down. It gets rocky right here. This rock is slippery. Uh, watch out for that snake. <laughs> We'd be turning around. Um, it's like what Psalm 119:105 says: Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. And Isaiah 9:2, this great messianic promise. It says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. Yes, we live in a world. We walk in a world that is darkened by sin. But Jesus is our light. He's our guide. And when we follow Him, we don't have to fear what lies ahead. We may not know what's around the next corner. We may not understand everything that's happening around us. But we trust that Jesus knows the way through. That He will lead us on right paths. And we follow Him. When we follow Jesus, we will walk not in darkness, but in light. Amen? Now, there's a second promise. We're going to read about that in John 8:30 30 through 36 so Let's look at these verses. As He was saying these things, many believed in Him, but some did not. And Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, If you continue in My Word, you really are My disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But there were those who didn't believe in Him, particularly the Pharisees, that answered, We are descendants of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? Jesus responded, Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in a household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the Son sets you free, you really will be free. The second promise is one of going from slavery to freedom. That if we obey Jesus, we will know the truth, and the truth will make us free. Now, this is obviously is where Abraham enters the conversation. Remember, we eventually get to where he says, Before Abraham was, I am. So, this is kind of how Abraham gets into this conversation. Because the Jews were extremely proud of their ancestry, they were sons and daughters of Abraham. How dare Jesus imply they were ever slaves? That's fascinating to me that the Pharisees would say we've never been enslaved to anyone because, hello, they're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles which is about the wilderness wandering after they've been set free from being slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Have they forgotten that? Or how the Assyrians came and removed the ten northern tribes into slavery? Or how the Babylonians came and, and, and exiled the Jews for 70 years? Or maybe the Greeks came and oppressed them so that you had to have this Maccabean revolt? And what about the current situation under iron, the iron fist of Rome? Isn't it amazing how our pride can make us ignore our faults and failures and deny or bury the wounds that we carry? Pride can even blind us to our current struggles, our need for deliverance. I mean, yeah, technically it's true the Jews weren't slaves at this time. The, Romes, the Romans had an had a invested interest in keeping the Jews appeased. They didn't want these bloody violent revolts any more than they had to. So they, they, they gave them the illusion of freedom. But while they weren't technically slaves, they weren't really free either, were they? And how true is that for people today? They have the illusion of freedom. They think that they can make of themselves whatever they want, that they are free to choose to be whoever they want to be, and they're either ignorant of or in denial of the reality that they are in bondage. They're in bondage to their sinful nature. They're in bondage to their addictions. They're in bondage to greed or lust or fear or self-righteousness. They're in bondage. You know, I always find it strange when people, particularly young people, you know, they want to be different just like everybody else, right? And so they're going to look a strange way. They're going to get involved in some weird thing just like all their other friends, right? So, I mean, we, we think that we're trying to be different, but in our sinful human nature, we're not free. We're slaves of sin. We're following that wide road that leads to destruction. If you want to really be countercultural, if you really want to be different from the world, if you truly want to be a radical, you follow the narrow path. And Jesus said in Matthew 7, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. And they all think they're unique. And, they're all, and they all think they're being different. And they all are wrapped up in themselves. But how narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life? And few find it. When we step out of the crowd to follow Jesus, y'all, we're going against the grain. We're swimming upstream. And it's not easy. Most people aren't going that way. But that's the real way to freedom. That's the real way to truth. That's the real way to life that is abundant and eternal. That's the path to purpose and peace and joy. It's the narrow way. Now, back in John 8, verse 31 there, people love to quote that verse. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But they often ignore the conditional sentence at the beginning of that. If, Jesus says, if you keep my teachings, if you hold to my teachings, you are truly my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Remember, Jesus is the truth, right? We said that last week. So if you're going to know the truth that frees you, you have to know Jesus. You have to know Jesus. You have to continue in His Word. Now what does that mean, to know Jesus and continue in His Word? Well, later on in John chapter 14, which is where last week's passage came from, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth. So the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. We receive the Spirit of truth when we love Jesus and keep His commands, He says. In John 14, 21, it says, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will also love him and what? Reveal myself to him. If we want to know the truth, we have to know Jesus. If we want to know Jesus, we have to remain in his love. And you can't remain in his love if you don't keep his commands. If you love him, you will obey him. So through Jesus' word, through the Bible, through the truth of God, we can find freedom because it reveals to us who we are and whose we are as Christians. Remember, the conversation here in John chapter 8 is about identity. Who Jesus is and who the Pharisees and the Jews think they are because they're descendants of Abraham. But until our eyes can be opened to the truth of who we really are, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that we are slaves in need of redemption, we'll never know forgiveness. We'll never know truth. We'll never know life and freedom. We have to first open our eyes to our situation. Who we are without Christ. And the truth of God's Word tells us we are made in God's image. The Bible reveals to us how He intended us to live as bearers of His image. The Scripture shows us who God is and what God expects from us. He expects us to love justice and mercy and walk humbly with our God. He expects us to treat other people as we would want them to treat us. He expects us to forgive others and to do unto others and to be grateful for His blessings in our lives. And the Bible shows us the good news of God's grace because we don't live up to that ideal. We are sinners. We are enslaved to this sinful nature. We can't be what God expects us to be on our own. And the Bible tells us that through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we can be set free. We can be made new, not by what we do. Listen to me. We aren't set free because we keep Jesus' commands and His Word. No, we are set free by who we are in Christ. The old is gone, the new is here, and it is by God's grace through our faith that we are saved and set free. It is then up to us to live out that freedom in obedience to Christ and His Word. So you understand, we aren't set free by legalistic obedience to commands or doing good works. Rather, we're set free by God's grace through faith so that we can keep His commands and do good works that brings glory to our Father in heaven. We, we, we can't put the cart before the horse. We trust in God. We receive by grace His salvation. He sets us free. Just like God by grace set the children of Israel free from the, in the Exodus, brought them across the Red Sea, then He gave them His commands. Not before. He didn't give them the Ten Commandments and say, now you keep these and I'll get you out of Egypt. He saved them first, then gave them the commands. And that's what Jesus does for us. He saves us, He sets us free, and then He expects us to live as free people free to obey Him, free to follow Him, free to love Him and worship Him and experience all He wants to give us. Jesus promises us if we follow Him, we will walk in darkness but in light. That if we obey Him, we'll know the truth and we'll no longer be slaves. We'll be set free. And the third promise is a promise that we go from death to life, that if we keep Jesus' words, we will never see death. Look at 8.51. Truly I tell you, If anyone keeps my words, he will never see death. Now, that's another astonishing promise. A lot of astonishing claims and promises here in these chapters. But this one on the surface doesn't make a lot of sense, right? I mean, by our own experience, we know that Christians die, correct? And and all of us in this room probably expect that we will someday die. Saints died in the Bible, they die today. What in the world is Jesus saying? Now, we're going to talk more about this. We're going to unpack this more in the sermons on the bread of life. I am the bread of life, and I am the resurrection and life. But for now, I want you to look back at John 6, verses 39 and 40. Jesus said, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus obviously is not promising his followers that they won't experience physical death. Rather, he's promising that death is a temporary state. He will raise us up on the last day to experience life that never ends. What Jesus means is that we won't experience the spiritual death that results in an eternity in hell separated from God. What he's saying is that the minute we see and believe on Jesus, we cross over in that moment from death to life. At that moment we receive eternal life. Our bodies will die. But we will live forever in Jesus' presence. And when Christ returns, we will receive a resurrection body that will never get sick, that will never die, and we will live forever on the new earth where there is no suffering, no sin, no sorrow, no separation. Jesus is the light of the world. We can confidently follow Him, trusting Him to lead us down the right paths. Through Jesus we can know the Father, and when we follow Jesus and abide in Him and in His Word, we'll experience true freedom to be who God has created and saved us to be. We'll be set free from the power of sin, from the hopelessness of those who are lost in sin. We'll walk in confidence and peace and joy and hope. And yes, ultimately we'll be free from the fear and the power of death itself. We are free to live, to live abundantly and eternally for and with Jesus. Those are His promises to us because He is the light of the world. But then in chapter 9, Jesus follows all that up with a proof. He gives a blind man His sight. So Jesus backs up these amazing claims, these precious promises with this powerful proof that acts like a real-life parable. I mean, Jesus actually did this. But all of the miracles in the book of John are signs. Jesus performs these miracles as a way to reveal some truth about Himself. So He's been talking about being our, our, our source of living water. He's talked to us about being the light of the world through whom we can find guidance and we can find freedom and we can find life rather than death. He's talked about all of this. And then Jesus finds a blind man and miraculously gives him sight. Now, we don't have time to go through this amazing passage today, but I encourage you to go home and read it this afternoon. It won't take you but a few minutes. But I do want to point out what Jesus says at the end of this story. Look at John chapter 9, verses 35 through 41. This is not on the screen, by the way. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out. So what happened was Jesus healed this blind man. He gets dragged before the Sanhedrin, before the Pharisees and Sadducees, they ask him all these questions about who healed you and all this stuff. And there's a, a pretty good back and forth. And the, and the man kind of, he, he punches back at the Pharisees. He, he, he uses some great verbal, uh, enacts some wounds here on their pride. And so they kick him out of the synagogue. He's, he's, been, he's been excommunicated. So Jesus hears about this, and he finds the man, and he asks... Do you believe in the Son of Man? Which is a way of referring to Himself as the Messiah. Son of Man is an Old Testament phrase that that points to the Messiah. So He's basically saying, do you believe in the Messiah? Who is He, sir, that I may believe in Him, He asked. Jesus answered, you have seen Him. In fact, He is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, He said, and He worshipped Him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see, and those who do see will will become blind. Well some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, "We aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains." That's a kind of a confusing thing. What is Jesus saying here? Well, first I want us to notice that the greatest miracle in this story isn't that this blind beggar receives physical sight. The greatest miracle is the spiritual sight he receives when he believes in and trusts in Jesus as the Messiah. He believes in Jesus, he sees Jesus for who he really is, the light of the world, and he worships him. This formerly blind man sees Jesus in a way that these Pharisees who think they can see do not. They're the truly blind ones in this story. The Pharisees were unwilling to acknowledge their blindness. That's what Jesus means, that they thought they could see. They refused to acknowledge their blindness, and so they were lost in their blindness because if you refuse to acknowledge your blindness, you put yourself outside the healing power of Jesus. He's not going to give sight to somebody who doesn't realize they're blind. And if we cannot recognize and admit our blindness, how can we ever receive spiritual sight from Jesus? The blind beggar saw. He believed and lived like He had never lived before. And so He experienced forgiveness. He experienced freedom and life in Jesus while the prideful Pharisees who proclaimed to be able to see and know the truth were lost in their sin, stumbling in their blindness, ignorant of the One who is truth, standing right in front of them. And they didn't see it. They were blind. If you recognize your blindness and you turn to the light of the world, guess what? You can also see. But if you deny your blindness, you will never know the light of truth. You will never walk in freedom. You will never know abundant and eternal life. You have to confess your blindness. You have to confess that you are dead in your sins. You have to confess that you are enslaved to your sinful nature. This morning, will you do that? Will you come today and confess your blindness and acknowledge that you're enslaved by sin and you need Jesus to be your Savior? That's the only way. To trust in Him, to let Him open your eyes. To come and walk the narrow way and experience the real way of life and freedom and truth. Maybe that's you this morning. In a moment we're going to stand and sing and I invite you to come. To put your trust in Jesus just as that blind man did. He trusted Jesus before he could physically see him. He went and did what Jesus said and he received his sight. And then he put his faith and trust in Jesus and received spiritual sight. Maybe you need to do that today. I'll be standing down front with love nothing more than to be able to point you in the direction of Jesus. To be that little light that Ben talked about, to point you to the great light who can give you guidance in all of your life. Christians, what about you? What about you? You have the light of the world. Jesus calls us to also be lights to the world. He calls us to be those little lights, to do our good works in such a way that we shine on God and people see Him and give Him the glory. And we do that by being obedient to Jesus. We do that by forgiving other people. We do that by serving those in need. We do that by giving. We do that by spending time in prayer and in His Word. We do that by sharing the gospel and making disciples. We do that by using our gifts and talents to serve Him in and through our church and in our community. Are you doing that? Are you shining your light before men in such a way that they see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven? Maybe you've been putting your light under a basket and you need to come to this altar and deal with God today. Take the basket and throw it away. Let the light of Jesus shine through you. Are you doing that? Are you living in freedom in Christ? Are you walking in the light of His truth? Are you experiencing a life of abundance, of peace and of joy? If not, there's something you need to do. You need to deal with God in some way. Confess a sin, rededicate your life, answer God's call to serve Him, to join this church. Whatever the Holy Spirit speaks to you today, whatever He's shining the pinpoint of His life on in your heart today, would you deal with it right now? To be obedient to what he says. Let's stand together and pray. And I invite you to respond as God's Spirit leads you. Father, thank you for sending the light of the world into our world that is darkened by sin. Thank you, Jesus, for coming, for shining the light of truth, for showing us who the Father is, for making a way for us to come and to be cleansed and to be saved and to be set free so we could have a relationship with God. If there's anyone here today that's never experienced that, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. God, you may be speaking to other hearts today about other needs in their life. Lord, maybe even ways I can't even imagine you've used your word to plant a seed, to to do some work in someone's heart. I pray they would be responding to that in faith and in trust. It's in Jesus' name we pray.